So grateful for our worship team. Thank you, Parker. Thank you, team, in leading us in worship this morning. So blessed. We're so grateful for you all. If you have a copy of God's Word, let me invite you to take it and be turning with me to the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 1. And uh, we've been considering these verses which begin with verse number 18 and continue through verse 32. If you're new to our church this morning, the first part of this year, I began a verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Romans. And just uh, what many have referred to as Paul's magnum opus. And his theme in this wonderful book of the New Testament is the gospel and how the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. But we come to a section in Romans here in the latter part of chapter 1 where Paul introduces a negative note in the letter before he really explains the good news. It's important that we understand the bad news. And so you'll notice in verse 18 that he has something to say about God's wrath. And really these verses explain for us why the world that we live in is in a mess. All of us recognize that something is not right in the world. It's really an admission that everyone makes in one way or another. The headlines, we we see it every day. And at times we wonder, does the depravity of man know any bounds? That's why you locked your doors before you left home this morning. It's why, teenagers, we parents have apps to track your every movement. Because we know that the world we live in is a dangerous place. It's not you that we trust. It's everybody else that we're concerned about. It's not you that we're worried about so much as it is the world we live in. From an early age, we teach our kids to not take candy from strangers. And so we ask the question, why is the world really in the shape that it's in? What's the problem? What's the solution? Well, some would say, well, the problem is issues of education, and so what we really need in the world is better education. Other people come along and say the issue is financial or political. Some would even make the argument that religion is the problem. You think about John Lennon and his song, Imagine, that was so popular you know, back during the 70s. Imagine a world where there's no religion and we all just get along. We live at peace and just sort of this utopian version of society. But you see, none of that really gets to the heart of the problem, which is the problem of the heart. As long as we think that the problem is outside of us, we try to locate it somewhere out there, then we will never really get to the real problem. The prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the human heart is wicked, desperately sick. Who can know it? Which means before I can really deal with what's not right in the world around me, I've got to confront the truth that's staring me in the face every day of my life. Something isn't right inside of me. All of us know those embarrassing thoughts and those feelings that pass through our heart. In our most vulnerable moments where perhaps we've let our guard down, our heart has betrayed us, we've said hurtful things, we've done hurtful things. As we get older, we may get better at filtering some of those things out, but we know that that tendency is still within us. I thought about that this week, even in my own life. 
It was several years ago, we were on a road trip. We were headed home to be with family for Thanksgiving. And uh, we were, I think we were driving through Winston-Salem on the way there. Traffic was terrible. As I'm driving through uh, Winston-Salem, there's this truck that's getting on the highway. And I mean, just comes right over into me, nearly broadsides me. I can't get over to the left. I slam on the brake. I jerk the wheel. In my thought, or in my mind, I just knew that it was disaster. We were about to have a major accident. And so I said something that I should not have said. My two children were very small, and they were in the back seat, and they heard what Daddy said. Well, after that tense moment, and I calmed down, I was able to say, kids, Daddy should not have said what he said. And there was not another word said about it for the entire three hours we had driving to my in-laws. But as soon as we get to my in-laws... My mother-in-law is there on the porch, ready to welcome us, and says, how was your trip? And my youngest, who was still sitting in a a car seat at the time, said, my daddy said, (laughs) I felt judged. That's what I felt. I felt judged. (laughs) Let me ask you this question, though. How would you like it if there were someone... Maybe whenever they wanted, they could just read what you were thinking or or, or blurt out to everyone in the room something that you had said in a very vulnerable moment. That'd be very uncomfortable, wouldn't it? So yeah, the problem is not just out there. The problem is in here, in me. And we really need to keep this in mind when we work our way through this passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 1. And here's our attitude. There but for the grace of God go I. So if you've got your Bible open, would you stand with me as we read beginning in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. Listen to what the Apostle Paul has to say here. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. I dealt with these verses last week, but here Paul is saying that all of creation bears witness to the truth of the Creator. There's evidence for God in creation around us. Paul says there's evidence as far as our conscience within us. We have a sense of right. We have a sense of wrong. He's going to say in the very next chapter that the law of God has been stamped into the human conscience. We've been made in the image of God. And so all of this knowledge, natural revelation, general revelation, what has lost and fallen humanity done? We've suppressed it in our unrighteousness. And Paul says that all of humanity really is without excuse. And then he goes on to say in verse 21, for although they knew God, as in this awareness of God, they lived with this awareness that they had to, in their denial, they had to suppress the truth of it. Though they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools 
and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then if we were to read further, we won't get there today, but if you go into verse 24 and the verses that follow, Paul says, therefore, God gave them over. God gave them up. God gave them up. It's an expression that he uses three times. So that man in his lostness and his blindness and his rejection of God, he's, he's determined to go his own way apart from God. And Paul describes God's wrath of abandonment in these passages. And let me just go ahead and tell you, the picture that he paints here is a very ugly picture. It's a grim picture of humanity apart from Christ. And there but for the grace of God, there go I. And so I want to preach from this subject this morning, why we all need the gospel. Why we all need the gospel. Our Father, we're so thankful for the truth of your word. And Father, my prayer as a preacher this morning is that I might stand in the power of the Holy Spirit and that you would bring to our minds and our hearts a sense of true understanding, both in terms of our condition, Lord, apart from you, as well as the glorious understanding of what you've done in the person of your Son, Jesus. Which is why Paul could say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it alone is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. So have your will and way in our hearts today, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Within this passage of Scripture, the Apostle Paul wants us to know that depravity is really the issue. And that word depravity is the biblical idea which sums up man's fallen nature. It's a word that's used by Paul himself down in verse number 28 where he says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. They didn't retain God in their knowledge or their thinking. For that reason, he gave them up to a depraved mind, a debased mind if you're following along in the ESV text. And the word that he uses there, translated debased or depraved, uh, it's a Greek term, adokimos. And that word means basically unapproved, not standing the test. And in Paul's day, this was a word that came right out of the banking world of the day. Now in his day, there was no paper money. All money uh, was made from gold or silver, and it was melted down and poured into a mold and fashioned into coinage so that when those coins cooled, they had to be a certain weight. And so the monetary value of a particular coin was determined by the weight of its metal. But because the metal was soft, a lot of unscrupulous people would shave down those coins, which was a major problem in the Roman world. I read where in one century alone, there were more than 80 laws passed in Athens to try to stop this practice of shaving down the coins which were in circulation, where where people would try to cheat the system. And so, again, genuine money had to be a certain weight, and so it was called dokimos, which means approved. It had to be approved. It had to pass the test, the weight. The opposite of this is that word adokimos. So that when you attach that negative little prefix to the Greek word, 
it renders it unapproved, not meeting the standard. And that's the idea that Paul has in mind when he refers to man's depravity. So that man in his unbelief and his rejection of God, he's become debased within. He doesn't meet the standard, does he? What is the standard? What's the weight? Well, it's the glory of God. Which is interesting when you think about that word kabod uh, that's used in the Old Testament to refer to the glory of God. Kabod, weight. You and I fail to live up to that standard. What's the standard? It's perfection. It's the holiness of God. But because of our own sin, we meet that standard. Now, let me just go ahead and tell you, the most moral person that you know, the most socially upstanding person that you know, apart from Jesus Christ, they still fail to meet the standard of God's perfection. Which is why we all need the gospel. Regardless of how notorious a sinner a person may be, we all fail the test in and of ourselves. And so depravity, this doesn't necessarily mean that a person is as bad as they can be all of the time, but it means that we are all as bad off as we possibly could be apart from Christ. And it explains why we need rescue, why we need redemption, why we all need the gospel. Now, the thing is, at various points in history, Men and women have been keenly aware of this sense of need. And God has often poured out His Spirit on broken and desperate people who understand that Christ alone is the hope of salvation. I think about those periods of time in history where the Spirit of God has moved in revival among His people. And as a response of reviving his people, there's also spiritual awakening among the lost. I think about the great awakening that happened on our own continent uh, way back in the early part of the 18th century. It's one of those times where God just moved in a miraculous way. We could go all the way back to 1734, and we could talk about how Jonathan Edwards, he was a congregational minister in Northampton, Massachusetts. But on a particular Sunday, he was, he was really, really burdened for just the overall lostness and apathy that was characteristic of his own congregation and the entire town of Northampton. And so in desperation, he was driven to his knees in prayer. And he began praying for God to move in power. And so he couldn't go on preaching just those simple platitudes that so many of the people had become accustomed to hearing. He really felt convicted that he needed to confront people with the reality of their need. That apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ, no matter how decent a person might be, they're still under wrath. And so in 1734, Jonathan Edwards began preaching many sermons from Romans. But he began emphasizing this wonderful truth of justification by faith. And the conscience of people was really sensitive to the fact that apart from Christ, God's wrath is revealed. His more well-known sermon from that period of time was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it was something that God used as a catalyst in that whole great awakening, that movement that spanned several decades throughout the American colonies before the American Revolution. Now, you might think that when he preached that, just by the title itself, he mounted the pulpit and was like a wild man in the way that he delivered the message. But you know that Jonathan Edwards read his sermon? In many ways, he read it in somewhat of a monotone fashion, but it was the truth that came alive 
in the hearts and minds of people. This notion that apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ, all that is left is wrath. And so there began to be conversions take place there in Northampton, Massachusetts. And what started out with five or six soon became, listen to this, 30% of the entire town of Northampton, Massachusetts were converted to faith in Jesus Christ. Now to put that in perspective, last time I checked, the population of our city was somewhere around 110,000. Let's say that 30% of our city came to faith in Jesus Christ. That would be somewhere along the lines of about 33,000 conversions. What do you think it would do in High Point if 33,000 people were gloriously converted to Jesus? What do you think that that might do to the murder rate in our city? What do you think that that might do? What impact might that have on homelessness in our city? Or drug addiction in our city? Now to be sure, sin would still be there, but let me tell you, the landscape, the, the spiritual landscape of our city would be drastically altered by the truth of God for the glory of God. That's what revival does, men and women. That's why I still believe, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. So that if we want awakening among the lost, there's got to be revival among the saved. There's got to be spiritual renewal in my heart, spiritual renewal in your heart, and that's where it's got to begin. Now, why do I tell you this? I do so simply because the Spirit-empowered church is God's answer to a spiritually darkened world. A world at its worst demands a church at its best, and Romans chapter 1 presents us with a picture of a world at its worst. So that the universal need for God and the universal need for righteousness and the universal need for the gospel, it's spelled out by the Apostle Paul in vivid detail. And so this principle that I want you to grasp this morning is this. It's only when we understand God's righteous judgment against sin that we can ever truly face our predicament as sinners and see our need for a Savior. So that that's where it begins where we've got to be confronted with this awful reality that apart from the grace of God in Christ, all of humanity, no matter how moral, no matter how upstanding you consider yourself to be, apart from Christ, all that's left is wrath. So that in that sense, the Apostle Paul sort of puts the entire world in a corner here. There's only two alternatives. It's either in Christ or under wrath. And that is the urgency of the hour. And so sin has rendered our world dysfunctional. Our world is descending into chaotic consequences brought on by man's sin and unbelief. We may see the symptoms. And Paul spells out those symptoms beginning in verse 24. But what's the ultimate reason for that dysfunction? What's the diagnosis? What's the solution? Well, the diagnosis is depravity. Sin, alienation from God. But the solution, Paul says it's the gospel and it's something that we all need. 
So I want to show you a few things about man's universal need. A few things to consider about fallen and lost humanity without Christ. Number one, notice with me how apart from Christ, humanity is bound in self-determination. So that the picture that Paul paints in these verses, it's one of lost man who's sort of barreling down the highway of life in self-determination. We've chosen to go our own way. Having rejected what can be known about God, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against man's unrighteousness and ungodliness. Now that's an unpleasant subject, this subject of the wrath of God. It's something we don't want to think about. To be perfectly honest with you, it's not something that I like to preach about. But it's a truth that's been caricatured by those who want to paint this miserable picture of sort of this vindictive God in heaven who's throwing sort of a divine temper tantrum. But that's not what this word wrath means. When the Bible speaks of God's wrath, it's referring to His righteous anger towards sin. His holy hatred toward all that is not in keeping with His perfect and holy character. And in response, it's not that He's going overboard. It's not that He loses it. In your anger, and my anger, we lose it. God never loses it. But the word that Paul uses here describes God's holy and settled disposition toward all that's not in keeping with His character. And yet this word also carries the idea of something which is ripening like a piece of fruit that's ready to be plucked. So that in that sense, this word that Paul uses for wrath, or gay, that's the word, it pictures God's wrath as something that builds up over a period of time. Like fruit ready to be picked, or like water that's ponding up behind a dam. Some of you may have been to Fontana Lake which is just outside of Bryson City in the western part of our state. Both my family and Edith's family were from that area, and so we know that area quite well. But at a depth of more than 400 feet, Fontana Lake is the deepest lake in North Carolina. Back in 1942, um, the Tennessee Valley Authority constructed the, the Fontana Dam, and they flooded more than 10,000 acres of farmland along the Little Tennessee River Valley. And the dam itself, it's the tallest dam east of the Rocky Mountains. It took three years to complete, from 1942 to 1945, which is interesting when you think that it happened during World War II. But something else to consider is that it also took an additional three years for the lake itself to fill up. Because a lake doesn't just happen overnight, outside of some kind of cataclysmic event, but it's a gradual process. And if the dam itself were ever to be compromised, it would be major disaster for those downriver. Now, you need to keep this in mind when you read about God's wrath in the Bible. Because in the very next chapter, Paul is going to describe those who are storing up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will one day be revealed. In other words, Paul says there's coming a time when the dam of God's judgment will burst wide open on a wicked and evil world. So that it's going to happen suddenly. It's going to be something that will take the world by surprise. But it will not be without sufficient warning. 
I think about how faithful preachers and witnesses have warned men and women of this undeniable truth of God's wrath. Just like John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness, the Pharisees were coming to his baptism and he said, hey, you bunch of snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath which is to come? In other words, he's saying, you're just here for the show. You're not here out of a sense of true repentance. Peter says that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he is patient toward you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And then he says this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works done on it will be exposed. Peter is saying the day is coming when the dam will burst, and God's wrath will be revealed. So there is this sense in which God's wrath is coming. But the language that Paul uses here in verse 18, he's using a present tense verb. It's almost as if he's saying the wrath of God is presently being revealed. And you say, well, how so? Well, if we go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, the consequences of man's sin, the world as we know it is under a curse. You ought to be reminded of that as death stares you in the face every day of your life. We're all just one heartbeat away from eternity. We're all just one breath away from stepping out into eternity. Death is a reality that we want to ignore. In that sense, we want to suppress the truth that God has revealed. The law of entropy, the second law of thermodynamics is at work in the universe, which means we see decay. Things are spiraling into decay and chaos. Paul says later in Romans chapter 8, it's because the world and creation has been subjected to futility by man's sin. And all of creation is groaning like, like a woman in labor pains. So in that way, God's wrath is being revealed in the world. But I believe Paul's being specific because down in verse number 24 and the verses that follow, he talks about something known as the wrath of abandonment. God's judicial wrath where he hands man over to the consequences and repercussions of man's sinful and willful unbelief. So that if you are intent on going your own way apart from God, know this. There comes a point in time when God will give you over to the consequences of the choices that you make to live your life apart from Him. And so there's this phrase that's repeated in verse 24 and the verses that follow. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. God is the perfect gentleman. It's almost as if He's saying, okay, you want to go your own way apart from me? Have it your way. But see how that works out for you and your world. And so, this self-determination is characteristic of fallen man. Now, notice the second thing. Paul wants us to know that fallen humanity is blind through self-deception. In his unrighteousness, he suppresses the truth. What can be known about God, it's plain, it's evident. God has shown it both in creation and in conscience. But rather than responding to that light, man suppresses it and he suppresses the truth. Now, why does he do that? Well, I think there are at least three reasons for why he suppresses the truth in his self-deception. First of all, we resist the lordship of God. Fallen humanity resists the lordship of God so that sin twists us up and renders us self-centered. 
Which means that naturally now, rather than possessing a God-centered and others-oriented view of life, sin has affected our nature so that we are selfish by nature. We want to reserve the right to run our own lives as we see fit. We don't want to go God's way. We want to go our own way and do our own thing. And so we resist His Lordship. A second way that we suppress the truth and unrighteousness, uh, we recoil from the holiness of God. We shrink back from it. God is holy. By nature, we are not. We're fallen, but God is holy beyond understanding. That word holy means to be set apart. God is set apart from us in terms of His perfection. He's set apart from us in terms of His righteous character. Set apart from us in terms of His wisdom and power and His eternal being. You and I are temporal and time-bound, but God is not. So that in His holiness, God is totally, completely set apart from sin. But we're sinful by nature. Which is why every person in Scripture that truly had an encounter with the holiness of God, what was their response? They melt in fear before a holy God. Like Isaiah the prophet, when he's confronted with the holiness of God, what's his response? He says, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Peter has this same reaction in Luke chapter 5 where he catches a glimpse of Jesus, His holiness and His awesome power. And he says something like this. He says, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now that's the reaction of the prophets and the apostles to the holiness of God. What do you think the reaction is for a person that doesn't know God. They shrink back from this notion of holiness. So no wonder they resist the truth. No wonder they make light of God. No wonder they deny His existence. No wonder they say, well, you Christians are just a bunch of prudes. Why? They're suppressing the truth of God because they're recoiling from the truth of His holiness. A third thing that fallen humanity does as far as suppressing the truth is concerned, we run from the omniscience of God. Resist His Lordship, recoil from His holiness, but we run from His omniscience. By the way, what's the first thing that Adam and Eve do when they sin against God in Genesis chapter 3? God comes calling, Adam goes running. And he's not running to God, he's running from God. So that now, he's hiding among the trees. He's stark naked. And he thinks that leaves can cover him from the omniscience of this sovereign God that's made him in his own image. And before we pick on Adam, let's just be honest, we do the same thing, don't we? We try to gloss over our sin. We try to make it sound like it's something which it's not. Make excuses for it. We run from the truth in our relationships. We run from omniscience. God knows everything there is to know. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? <laughs> he knows everything there is to know about you and me. He knows all of my weaknesses. He knows all of my anxieties. He knows all of my fears. Every thought that I've had, every deed that I've done, every ambition of my heart, God knows so that my actions and my thoughts are weighed in the balance by Him. And so now add all of this up. And here's what you're left with. He's Lord, 
therefore he's qualified to be my judge. He's holy, therefore he's qualified to be my jury. And he's omniscient, therefore he's qualified to be my executioner. So that in my own sinful condition, no matter how moral and upstanding I may be in my own self, I still stand condemned under his wrath. A dokimos. Which is why we run from him and we suppress the truth which can be known. Now here, here's the deal. You'll never, ever, ever be saved from that while running from God. But what you have to do is own up to the reality of all that and run to God in Christ. Which is why the gospel is such wonderful news. Because the gospel tells me that Jesus took my place. The gospel tells me that Jesus willingly died as my substitute, not just simply dying for me, but dying as me so that the righteous sentence of death was carried out upon him in this guilty sinner's place. And so in your sin, you can try to ignore it. You can try to minimize it. You can try to deny it. You can cover it with your own efforts at religion and morality, or you can nail it to the cross. And get it under the blood of Jesus Christ. And trust that it's the blood of Christ that cleanses you from all sin. That's why we sing from time to time. Come ye sinners, poor and needy. Weak and wounded and sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you. Full of pity, love and power. Now here's the response God is looking for. I will arise and go to Jesus. And he will embrace me in his arms. And in the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. Which is why Paul will write elsewhere in chapter 8 of Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so here's, here's the deal. It's either am I going to be in Christ or under wrath? It's the only alternative. There's a third thing that we can know about fallen humanity, and it's this one. Humanity is bent on self-destruction. So that Paul paints this picture here in Romans chapter 1 of man in his self-determination and his self-deception. He's going his own way and what is that way? Where does that way lead? It leads to destruction. The Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. The wages of sin, death. So that what Paul describes here is really the self-destructive ways of man as God gives him over to his own sinful dictates and choices, thinking that he's smarter than God, thinking that he's wiser than God, thinking that he can go at it himself, he chooses the road of self-destruction. That's why Jesus said that the way that leads to destruction is broad, like a superhighway. But narrow is the way, straight is the gate that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Now listen to this. Here's the self-destruction that Paul describes. He says, although they knew God, verse 21, they didn't honor Him as God. They didn't give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. He then goes on to describe the consequences of idolatry. And so there's this self-destructive downward spiral that's described by the Apostle Paul in these verses. Which, by the way, Satan wants man to believe that apart from God, man is ascending the staircase. 
like the builders at Babel. The, 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 the taller we get, the, the, the tower to be, the more like God we're going to have. We don't have to worry about this God of wrath and justice. And we get to be boss. But Paul says the opposite is true. Man's not climbing the spiral staircase. He's descending the spiral staircase. You know what a spiral staircase is? You ever climbed a spiral staircase? Maybe you've been to Cape Hatteras. You go in that lighthouse and you know the spiral staircase. It, it, there's a wide, it's wide at the base. But the taller that it gets, the, you know, the, the more narrow the staircase becomes so that you know, you're up there at the top, you're like this. <laughs> That's what Paul is doing in this passage. He's saying that man in his rebellion and in his lostness, he's going down a spiral staircase because his rejection of God and God's truth leads him to self-destructive beliefs and behaviors. And notice beliefs always precede behaviors. We want to jump to the symptoms when we come to a passage like Romans 1. And we want to shake our finger like this in the face of an unbelieving world. And we say, yep, the problem is all of y'all out there. You better not miss what Paul is saying in verses 18 through 23. Because he's saying, apart from the grace of God, there go I. You too can be blinded in your unbelief and persistent in going your own way and leading to self-destruction. By the way, that's where we all would be apart from God's grace. So what are these steps? I'm going to give them to you quickly. Step number one involves humanity's blatant irreligion. They knew God, but they didn't honor Him as God. Verse 21. They can't claim ignorance as an excuse because they're without excuse on the basis of what God has universally revealed about Himself through creation and conscience. That's what Paul is referring to here. They know Him not in the sense of an intimate knowledge, but in the sense of awareness. All of humanity has this sense of awareness. It's true of creation. It's true of conscience. But they don't honor God. They don't glorify Him as God. 2 Timothy 3.7 refers to those who are always learning, but they're never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. You thought about the great strides that we've made in humanity as far as technology is concerned? I was having a conversation with my father-in-law yesterday about the James Webb Space Telescope. I don't know if you've read up on that, but it's really remarkable that right now it's a little over a million miles away from the earth. It's beaming back these pictures of planets in our own solar system. I mean, with just great detail, and it's really remarkable. Now, can you imagine if we could go back in time, in, in a, maybe a hundred years ago, in a former generation, if they would know that in 2024, Humanity is sending satellites up into space and telescopes up into space to explore the reaches of our own solar system. In spite of all of this accumulated knowledge that we now have, man still has the same old problems, doesn't he? Why? It's because he's like a dog chasing its own tail as far as knowledge is concerned. And so willingness to embrace the truth is prerequisite to knowledge of the truth. Man's lost. Step number two, Paul says it involves humanity's shameless ingratitude. Now listen to this. Though they knew God, they don't honor Him as God, nor do they give thanks to Him. Verse 21. So that now there's this sense of ingratitude toward God which characterizes lost and fallen humanity. It's why we have to teach our kids from an early age how to be thankful and to say thank you. 
Because we all operate under this natural assumption that we're entitled to a thing. Though we may not say so in that many words, it's how we all operate by nature. We don't want God to make the rules. We want to make the rules. We don't want to devote our lives to His glory. We want Him to be devoted to our glory. And so Tim Keller says it this way, we all become cosmic plagiarizers, taking what God has given and we pass it off as our own. (laughs) So that now man just lives on this horizontal plane with no thought of anyone else but himself. Os Guinness says that this statement about ingratitude from Paul, it's a sober reminder that rebellion against God does not begin with the clenched fist of atheism, but with the self-satisfied heart of the one for whom thank you is redundant. Wow. So step two then is ingratitude. Step three, what about humanity's empty intellectualism? Now it's just getting darker as we're descending into the basement. The last part of verse 21, Paul says, they become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Fallen man no longer retains God in his knowledge and as a result, he becomes futile in his thinking. That word futile means empty, vain. So that his rejection of God's truth leaves him with morally and philosophically empty thinking. And the word thinking that he uses there is the word we get the word dialogue from. So that he's saying now man in his fallenness and lostness, his inner dialogue is completely irrational. He's empty in his thinking. Psalm 10, verse 4, the wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. He's irrational. He's in the dark. But it gets darker. Step number four, notice where this leads, humanity's sophisticated ignorance. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Claiming wisdom, claiming to possess wisdom. Sophia, that's the word there. Uh, Philosophy, sophistication. It's a word used to describe someone who's cultured and who's learned. By the way, aren't we told by the elites in our own society that unless you embrace a certain ideal that society around you embraces in terms of sexuality and all of this stuff, you're just a barbarian from the Stone Age. I'll never, I'll never understand how it's sophisticated for a man to mutilate his body and self-identify as a woman. That's what you call sophisticated ignorance. And that's what Paul is describing here in this passage of Scripture. Listen to what Eugene Peterson says in the message. He sort of gets to the heart of this, uh, this idea. People knew God perfectly well, but when they didn't treat Him like God, refusing to worship Him... They trivialized themselves into silliness and confusion so that there was neither sense nor direction left in their lives. They pretended to know it all, but they were illiterate regarding life. We have all of this sophistication and all of this accumulated knowledge and we can confer PhDs and degrees upon ourselves, but when it gets to the heart of the issue, man is illiterate regarding life. Psalm 14, 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Literally, the fool has said in his heart, no God for me. I want to be boss. I want to sit on the throne. 
Step number five. That's getting really grim now. Step number five involves humanity's exchanged idolatry. Having professed themselves to be wise, they become fools. And so look at this, verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So notice now how there's this degradation as man is spiraling into the abyss. He's exchanged the worship of the immortal God of glory for images of himself. And then creatures that fly in the sky. And then creatures that crawl upon or run upon the land. And finally, creatures that crawl in the dirt. So that man, what he thinks is going to take him up is actually taking him down into the dirt. And so we swap out God for ourselves as the center of our lives, and then we turn to those things that he's created as replacements for him. It's called idolatry. And then the result of that, step number six, is perverse immorality, which is characteristic of humanity, as God gives them over. Verse 24, in the lust of their heart to impurity. And Paul goes on to describe all kinds of social sins and all kinds of sexual sins and perversions which can be traced back to the heart of man and his rejection of God and the knowledge of God that God has plainly revealed. And all of this, folks, explains the depravity that we see on, on parade in our own world. It explains the dysfunction that we see in our own lives. But the issue is, will we be honest enough to deal with the facts and to get honest before God and to get desperate and broken before God and like the church, hey, in 1734, like Edwards, we got to get broken about our own sin, don't we? If there's to be a great awakening among the lost, it's got to begin. I got to draw a circle and then I got to stand in that circle and say, Lord, it's me in need of your life. Chuck Swindoll says this, God's not some divine bellhop waiting to meet our every need or to run our errands and make us feel good. Church is not about entertainment. Worship is not about us. Truth is not about me. And all of this cuts across the grain of our meistic society where if it's not about me, why would I even want to participate? But when we truly worship, we encounter a God who is absolutely just, who is absolutely holy, who is absolutely righteous, who has every right deliberately to turn such unbelief over to the just consequences that take their toll. So that now, here's what we've done in our own society. We've worked it out through our own speculations, a way to make the perverted normal, the wicked and the unnatural acceptable, lest we make anyone uncomfortable. But the first step to your salvation is you getting uncomfortable with the stark reality that ought to stare you in the face. Now I'm done preaching. Let's stand. And I'm going to give you some good news as you stand to your feet. And here's the good news. Jesus in my place. Amen. Jesus in my place. Jesus in my place. That's the gospel. Jesus 
endured the wrath of God upon sin in my place. So that now through repentance and faith in Jesus, God declares me righteous. His wrath has been satisfied at the cross. His righteousness and forgiveness and redemption and grace is yours in Jesus Christ if you come to Him. And turn from your sin, your self-determination, your self-deception, and your self-destructive road. Were it not for the grace of God, let me tell you something, every single one of us would be on that self-destructive road. But Jesus in His mercy got me off of that self-destructive road and he placed my feet on a rock, the solid bedrock of his grace and his gospel. Bless his name. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Listen, the world needs the gospel. I need the gospel. We all need the gospel. You personally need the gospel. Maybe this morning you say, Pastor, I'm not saved. And the Holy Spirit has taken the truth and wow, he's just, he's just brought it to bear upon my heart and my conscience in such a vivid way. My prayer is that if you're not saved, you, you wouldn't be able to leave today out of a sense of real conviction. You, you, can't, you can't walk out these doors today without getting this issue of your own salvation settled. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. As we sing here in just a moment, I'm going to be right here down front. I've got some pastors who will be right here with me. You come and you take one of us by the hand. You see one of us after the service and say, you know, pastor, I need to be saved. I want to find out more information about how to be a member of this church. I need to be baptized. I'm a Christian. I've never been baptized. I need to be baptized. Maybe you need to come and say, Lord, just revive me. Renew me. Use me however you see fit. This altar is open for you too. You come. Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you for your word. And for the way that your spirit is moving among us in our hearts and lives. There, but for the grace of God, there go I. We all, we all need the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.